Okay. Well, good morning. <laughs> Did you put him to sleep, bro, or what? Let's try that. Just like one more time. Good morning. Okay. I, I do frequently say, if you if you at least let me know you're awake now, then it's it's I have a, I have a running chance to keep you awake uh, for the next forty minutes. Thank you, Steve, for a, a wonderful message. As you can see, my lovely assistants. Thank you, beautiful men that you are. Um, are are. Uh, providing uh, a hands out for each of you that uh, Lord willing will serve as a reference to uh, what we're going to look at this week. Uh, I hope you all had a good night's sleep, a beautiful morning, had a nice beautiful run out by the falls this morning. I was looking for many of you but, but didn't see you. Um, hopefully I'll, I'll see more of you tomorrow morning uh, bright and early. While the handouts are being uh, distributed, I wonder if you could turn with me again to the same verses we read together last night In Jeremiah chapter 29, I think it's important to read these again uh, because uh, they set, I think, an important context for what we want to discuss today uh, and the rest of the week, frankly. Jeremiah chapter 29, and we'll start reading from verse 10. Jeremiah 29 and verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, That after seven years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and there shall you go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search me with your, with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you uh, from all the nations and from all the places whither I have, I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Beautiful words from the Lord that, that really, as I say, think set the context for one we want to look at. And if you do want to nap for the next 35, 40 minutes, which you're allowed to do, whether you're in the sun or in the shade, the essence of what the Lord Jesus is teaching us, I, I trust in this passage, is that if you search him with your heart, not only will he, not only will you find him, he will be found of you. And those are two different principles. You know, it's one thing for me to look and to discover someone and to find them, it's another thing for that person to reveal themselves to me. And that's what the Lord wants here. And he says this at a very strategic time in history. And I hope that you'll understand that time. And I hope that you'll see as over the next few days that the very time that Jeremiah was describing here, the time in which Ezra lived, the time in which Nehemiah lived, the time in which Esther lived, is very much like the time we live today. So the plan for the week, as you can see from your handout, uh, and I apologize a little bit to the Stratmans, um, who I I think are starting to become my stalkers, and I quite love it. Uh, When I go to give uh, conferences, I find Stratmans to the right of me and Stratmans to the left of me and a a few Botmans to add, and and I love it. Uh, that, That I've taken a bit of a similar study at our home assembly, although in a bit of a different context. As I mentioned last night, we're just slowly working through the whole of the Old Testament, trying to give an overview of each book of the Bible. 
but I've lumped together four of them for the week, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job, uh, because I think there's a common theme that weaves their way, especially f- through the first three of them. And we'll make some comments, of course, also about Job as well. And my hope is multifold. One, I want to excite you about the study of God's Word. For those of you who were here a decade ago when we were here before, it's one of the things I feel very passionately about. It's one thing to teach people. It's another thing to teach people to dive into the Word of God themselves. So if you leave Yosemite this week and you don't remember a thing that Mikhail said, obviously listen to everything that Price said, but if you listen to everything that Price said, if you forget everything I say, but you have a greater motivation to get into the Word of God yourself, mission accomplished. I really want to excite you about the Word of God. And we'll talk a bit about that each day as we go through the concept of studying the Word of God by books, as I mentioned last night, because it was written in books. But my second hope is to try and not only get you excited about the general principle of God's Word, but of trying to look at things from a macro level before you dive into the micro level, both historically and spiritually, if you will. So, for example, in a couple of minutes at the end of this mini introduction, I'm going to walk you through the history of the planet very briefly and have you hopefully understand as we drill down into the nation of Israel to see how history unfolds in a way that even in of itself is a spiritual lesson. So it's one thing to, as one brother said, I like to study the words of God. You know, you get down into the nitty gritty, line upon line, precept upon precept. But sometimes it's really helpful for us to step back and say, What is the global message of Ezra? What is the global message of this whole era in the time of God's people? Because uh, we're given, as I mentioned, the Word of God written in books, but we see them, and Ezra is the perfect person to talk about, because Ezra is quite likely the, the gentleman who put together the Word of God the way you and I have it today the Pentateuch in its order, and the minor prophets in, in their order primarily, obviously not, not to the very end, but to, towards uh, uh, pretty well right to the end of the Old Testament. The third lesson, or overarching principle I want to share with you today, is a beautiful principle, and that's a principle of revival. You know, Ezra itself, the book, raises lots of questions. Question number one I would ask is, can the minority be right? Right? I mean, look, I'm, I'm a Canadian, eh? Like, we're still, we're st- we still don't have our U.S. citizenship, although we live here in God bless Merca. And, and, and we're very thankful to be here. And, and my girls are learning both Canadian and American history. And we're very, very thankful for that. So I, I want to be careful if I make any comment about U.S. politics because I can't even vote. All right. So, so, so cut me some slack here. But, you know, it's striking even watching this political debate and, and, and the, the interesting things that are happening. You know, we're so focused on these polls and what does the majority and the majority has spoken. I must be your candidate because, you know, 50.1 percent of people have said, I'm your candidate. You know, because it is this, understandably in a democracy, this concept that the majority has to be right, or at least has to be listened to. We're going to have to question a little bit of that. I'm not talking politics, but spiritually speaking, can the minority of people be right? Because that's, we're going to find here, that there's pretty much a minority of people. At one point today, we're going to be talking about 43,000 people only that are returning to the land of promise after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not, depending on how we look at timing, millions did not. Question number two is, can God's people be united? Is that possible? 
Is it possible not to put, you know, 10 of us in a room and have 12 opinions? Right? Now, it's not to say that we can't have good discussion about things and we perceive things differently. But one of the beautiful themes of these books that we're going to see together is genuine unity. When you see brothers and sisters literally linking arms together to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls, to stave off the enemy. And yet we're going to see very clearly at the same time the threats to that unity. And sadly, some of the greatest threats to that unity came within, let alone without. I mean, if, if we're going to fight within ourselves, what's the likelihood we're going to be able to fight off the enemy? The enemy can just sit in the sideline and say, okay, I'm just going to watch while you guys fall apart. Tragic. So we're going to see these beautiful questions uh, today. Can the minority be right? Is unity possible? And, and, and hopefully we'll find, of course, that those things are true. So let's quickly just back up for a minute and get history. Now, I don't want to get too simple for you because you probably know all of this. But in particular for the, our young people here today and for those who are early studying in God's word, this macro concept of being able to step back and look at the big picture is really helpful. Now, we do this in, in, in business. I know I do this in medicine all the time. I have the privilege of being our postgraduate dean at Mayo Clinic, so I uh, oversee all of our residency and fellowship programs. And one of the things we encourage all of our trainees to do is to do research projects. And so uh, very often I tell them about the elevator talk, which is to say I'm going to step into the elevator with them to go up to a patient's floor, which means they have maybe 20, 25 seconds. And I say, in this elevator, you need to describe your research project to me. And they start going, well, I want to uh, uh, get this many patients uh, files to understand that by the time we've gotten to the top floor, they haven't even gotten past the first sentence. How can they step back and say, I want to understand why people with this cancer respond to this chemotherapy as opposed to that chemotherapy? All right. At least we know the context, that concept of being able to step back and look at the big picture. Spiritually speaking. If we're going to love the Lord our God with all our minds too, and I'm not just talking about an intelligence-like factor, because it's not intellect that gives you insight in the Word of God. You don't have to have a high IQ to study God's Word. That's not the point. You have to have uh, uh, an emotional quotient, if you will. You have to be connected to the author. But if we're going to study God's Word and understand it, we need at times to get that global view. Can I, can I ask you to give me a global overview of certain books of the Bible? Can I give you, ask you even just timeline-wise to give an overview? So let's do a quick timeline just to bring ourselves to where we are. Let's assume that Adam lived somewhere around 4,000 B.C. Right? That puts Noah and the, and the flood around 3,000 B.C. Some of you have heard me say this before. That's 1,000 years in 11 chapters. Right? Or even five chapters, really, depending on how you look at things. And then we have Abraham at about 2,000. We were reading from Genesis 22 earlier. So you've read the first 20-ish chapters of the Bible, and you're already halfway through the Old Testament. Right? I mean, even, even if the first dozen chapters brings us to, to, to Abraham, you've barely read anything, but you've traversed 2,000 years of history. That in itself is an important concept because, as I frequently said, people think God is in a rush to get upset. 
but they haven't looked at the actual time factor. But if you equate chapter to chapter historically, you'll get confused. So so, um, Adam, 4,000, Noah, 3,000, Abraham, 2,000, David, 1,000. And of course, our Lord Jesus at around time point zero. That just gives you a bit of a global sense. Now, in this sphere here, between the 2,000 and zero, so the second half of that time frame, if you will, uh, the, the, the tape slows down a little bit, right? We're given a little extra detail. We're actually given a lot of extra detail, in particular, between about 1500 and 500 BC. If you figure that Moses is about 1500 and Nehemiah is about 500, it's that 1,000 years where we have the extraordinary detail that we're given in the context of God's Word. So that puts us 2,000 after, roughly, about as far from the cross as Abraham was, right? On the other side of the cross. Now, why am I giving you that context? Because I want us to understand the history, of course. You know what happened with Adam, and ultimately uh, it, it, it took a while, but a thousand years later, the earth was covered with sin. Right? We're, one thing we are good at doing is sinning, and sinning quickly, right? So uh, the earth literally starts again with those, uh, those who survived the flood, very few in the ark. And it takes us to about a thousand years to the time of Abraham. And this is where the Lord really establishes his nation. And he establishes them in a wonderful way. But we're now going to start seeing history repeat itself. Because they make their way down to Egypt instead of staying where really the Lord had intended them to stay. So now they find themselves literally, if you will, in captivity in Egypt. Well, the Lord miraculously takes them out brings them into the promised land. Under Joshua, they have this tremendous foray into the promised land. And we think, wow, this could be the end of the story. This is great. Now they finally made it in and they're enjoying it. Well, before long, we find that they get themselves into trouble again. And this is where we're going to find ourselves today. Because around uh, 722 or so BC, right? After we've had all the period of time that they have been in the promised land, we're now going to start to see the captivity begin. But what happened in that promised land? They came in. They had great victory under Joshua. Looked like everything was going to go great. What book comes after Joshua? Starts with J and rhymes with with Mudges. Uh, Judges, thank you. Okay, so if you remember the book of Judges, not the most encouraging book on the planet, right? Because very soon thereafter... There was a cascade downward of sin that leads us into First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and now we find ourselves at Ezra. Let me summarize that whole period of time. Right, there were flashes of wonderful things done for God and His people. Perhaps spiritually, the zenith came with David, and physically or nationally. Zenith came with Solomon. But after Solomon, it's pretty well a downhill road. And notice the order, threefold order. Number one, the priesthood failed. Time after time, those who were supposed to be the closest link between God's people and himself failed. This is an important principle. 
Number two, the prophets failed. The ones who are also meant to be a special link between the Lord and his people. But we see, so for example, we go back to um, uh, the Eli and the, the failures of Eli. And we saw that we went from someone who is meant to be supporting the work of God where he and his sons were making themselves fat off of the, the, the offering of, of the Lord and they defiled the very presence of God. You say, well, if the priests fail, maybe, maybe the prophets will catch up. And so Samuel did pretty well for a while, but who failed with Samuel? His sons. As you've often heard me say, the sons were repeated failures here. Sons of the priests failed. Sons of the prophet failed. So the people came to God and said, we want a king like all the other nations. He said, all right, I'll give you a king. Maybe, maybe you think having a king will fix everything. And then the kings failed too. So they failed in the spiritual. They failed in the secular. And they failed in the political. I don't know if you know any other country that's followed the same pattern like that. Right? Starts with A and rhymes with Bamerica. All right, I'm just saying. Right? But, but I mean, this, this is the, the downward decline, isn't it? You turn your back on the Lord and, and civil and moral disarray will come thereafter so the priests failed the prophets failed the kings failed their their sons failed it's almost as if the lord said well if the problem is a prophets and priests and kings well let me send my son who's the only person in the scripture who has ever held those three offices no one there are lots of people in scripture who hold two of them No one has ever held all three offices of prophet, priest, and king. Praise God. He's our prophet, priest, and king. The one who will never fail. Isn't that what you hinge your hopes on today? That we have a king that will never fail. But notice, God didn't give up on them. That's really the point here. The point is that despite their repeated, systematic, comprehensive failure, God wanted to restore them. So how is he going to restore them? Well, we're going to learn over the next three, uh, the uh, the next uh, six days that he restores them in sequential order. He is first going to start with the priesthood. And so we're going to read today about the restoration of the priesthood. He is then going to restore the prophetly order culminating in John the Baptist. And then, praise God, he's going to restore the kingship. How is he going to restore the kingship? By giving Israel a great king? No, by being their king. That part hasn't come yet. We're waiting on that. So again, had you not stepped back and look at the history of Israel in that simple way, you may not have seen that beautiful pattern of the failure of the the priest, prophet, king, and the restoration of the priest, prophet and king. So let's talk a little bit about that restoration of uh, the priest, uh, the priesthood uh, today. Now, turn with me, if you will, please, to Ezra. And I know that um, we have a lot of ground to cover, but my thought was that today for this session, we would just get a little bit of a ways into Ezra, 
and then we'll finish Ezra tomorrow, Lord willing, uh, before we move on to Nehemiah. We'll probably spend roughly two messages on each of these uh, of these books. But I want us to understand now, that historically, what happened was the, um, as I mentioned, during the Israeli history around 722 B.C., Israel was taken into captivity. By then, there had been that split between uh, Israel and Judah. As you remember, the ten tribes went north. Judah and Benjamin stayed south. Israel was taken into captivity in what we sometimes call the Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. And we could argue that captivity is not over. Because they've never fully been restored. Now, there is, of course, exception to that rule. Even if you read your New Testament carefully and start to see some of the individuals who have come to faith in Christ, they came from some of those ten tribes as well. Because one lesson you're going to learn this week repeatedly, almost to the point of nausea from me, is that God cares for the individual. And even if the nation has failed, he is interested in every single person. And so we see restoration in each of those tribes. But a hundred years later, somewhere around 586 or so BC, now we have the Babylonian captivity. This is the big one. This is the bad one. This is where Nebuchadnezzar and his team and his forces come in and they absolutely decimate the land. And if you are an ancient evil empire, not that I suspect you are, but if you are an ancient evil empire, it's one thing to go and pillage a country and take all of its goods and the gold and the silver and its crops and all the things that you want. You know what you also take? You take the people to be yourself. And something happened that the Jews never thought would happen again, that they're taken out of their land and they're brought into a distant land. It was tragic. We have time a little bit later to read a few verses from Psalm 137 where they wept, it says, by the waters of Babylon, longing to be back in Jerusalem. So here they are. They're in captivity, but Jeremiah had signified, not in the text that we read, but in other texts, had signified very clearly that that captivity would be a limited captivity and would be for 70 years. Why did the Lord let them go into captivity, by the way? Without that captivity, they would never have been restored to the Lord. Sometimes you wonder, why does God let bad things happen to my life? Let alone them happening at the hands of pagans. It's not like the Lord brought them aside to himself and said, look, let's have a little, as sometimes the expression is used, come to Jesus talk. Like, let's let's just sit and talk together. No, he said, I'm going to let a horrible enemy. Listen, you think your boss is rough? Try Nebuchadnezzar. Tell that to to Daniel, who had Nebuchadnezzar as a boss. It's a pretty big deal when you lead your boss to the Lord, by the way, especially when he's Nebuchadnezzar. But that's a whole other discussion. We don't have time to talk about Daniel today. But but there he is, and they're under this horrible oppression, and they get pulled into the land. The story of Daniel, if you want a complete side note, is an example of that even in captivity, even in the darkest of phenomena, we can still be a testimony to the true God. Daniel, as we know that verse beautifully says, purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And God help us to be like Daniel, who knew what it was okay to do and what it was not okay to do. And you young people, when you're in school and you're going to college, pray every day for discernment to know what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. Because as I jokingly say sometimes, Daniel found it completely appropriate 
to go to Babylon University, right? He maybe even had a, a big t-shirt that said, BU, Babylon U, right? He maybe even gone to the Babylon games, right? And, and supported his team and, and had season's tickets to the Babylonian stone throwers competition. I don't know, whatever, whatever they did, right? Like he was willing to submerse himself, submit himself to that. But he knew it was wrong to eat the food that they offered to him. So when you're at college and you're in your dorm or you're in the workplace, men and women. And this is the way we do business here. This is how the practice works. You gain discernment from God to know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Because Daniel learned that. And so he knew when it was acceptable to do this and he worked for a pagan boss and supported him and advised him and counseled him. But when they told him, "Uh, by the way, you can't pray, he said, I'm sorry, I'm out. I'm getting on my knees and I'm going to pray. God help us to be like that every single day. To know when you say yes and when you say no. And it's, it's simplistic if we think it's always yes or always no. That discernment is something that we ought to pray for. But here they are, in, are taken in captivity. It had been predicted it was only going to last 70 years. And Ezra starts to understand what this is going to mean for his people. And I know time's going quick, but let's read a couple of verses here. Just chapter 1, verse 1 of Ezra. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, as we mentioned, Jeremiah had predicted that it would happen. The Lord stirred up in spirit of uh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, "Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God will be his his God be with him." And let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, besides the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. You know, my reaction to this in modern colloquial saying is, are you kidding me? Seriously? So Cyrus defeats the Babylonian Empire. He's got all this free labor. And what does he say? You know what? I think I'll let you go. You know what? Actually, here, I command you to go. And, and I'm going to give you money and I'm going to give you resources to do it. We're going to see this again when we come to talk about Nehemiah. Some of you have heard me talk about Nehemiah. I just think it's the most incredible story in the world that the king supported Nehemiah the way he did. But Cyrus here is saying... I'm going to facilitate your return. But notice, he didn't get all taken up with the size of the building and bringing it back to the glory days of Solomon. He, as a pagan Persian king, knew that it was about God. Sometimes it can be a sad thing when the world outgods us. You ever seen that happen? where a colleague or a friend might say something that almost shames you because they have a better spiritual perception even in an uh, uh, and even with a natural mind and heart than you might have that was only of course miraculously done because God had placed it in his heart to do so come over to chapter 3 
verse 1 for a minute. Chapter 3, verse 1. And when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. As one man. So they had, if you go back up to the end of chapter 2 for just a moment, uh, verse 64, look right at the end of chapter 2. It says, The whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score. So about 43,000 people, and it says here is one man. Chapter, verse 2 of chapter 3, Then stood up Yeshua, the son of Josadak, and, uh, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses and the man of God. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people out of those countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon. Uh, unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. Go down to verse 10. And when the builders uh, laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. And they sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord uh, that w- was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men who had seen the first house when the foundation of this house were laid before the eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy. And we'll stop the reading there because our time's going quickly. But here it wasn't just a decree from a king. This actually happened. So if you look at your handout for a moment and give you a little bit of an overview sense of what was happening here, that the story of Ezra is the account of the return from the Babylonian captivity initially to restore the temple. When we come to Nehemiah, we're going to be talking about restoring the walls. But here it's the temple first. Ezra was the author, obviously, being called Ezra, and he refers to himself frequently. He authored it somewhere around 450 B.C., uh, and as you can see, that was obviously clearly subsequent to that captivity uh, 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 that uh, we knew was roughly about 586 to 516 BC. So if you just look at the overview of the book, the first half of the book focuses on Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel um, speaks to us very much of the importance of the temple, whereas the next half of the book focuses on Ezra, which is focusing on the word of God. You can't have the temple without the word. You can't have the word without the temple. They go hand in hand. We'll talk more about that when we discuss this a little bit more tomorrow. Drilling down a little bit deeper, what I've tried to do with each of these uh, books is try and give you major themes that we learn throughout them. Ezra literally means helper. And Ezra was a helper to the people of God. Ezra was an incredible scribe, an incredible student of God's word. Can you imagine being tasked with compiling God's word together? I mean, this man was special. But even at that, I I want us to view Ezra as not just the librarian, right? He's not just the book geek, right? He's not just the intelligent and spiritual man. He was a man who is able to motivate the people of God. This is something I pray for. This is something I'm sure Steve prays for. This is something as, 
elders, as leaders, as Sunday school teachers, as Awana leaders, whatever context you have, you ought to pray for. Lord, don't just use me intellectually. Don't just use me to say words to people. Use it through the Spirit of God to change their lives. And one of the things that we're going to see later on as we study Ezra's character a little bit more, he wasn't just, all right, look, I read Jeremiah's words and I know that the time is up and it's time to go back to the land and to restore things. I'm just going to sit here in headquarters and I'm going to direct operations and I'm going to write decrees. I'm going to spiritually tell you what to do. He gets right in there with them. Tomorrow we'll read more about how he was right there in the front lines. He saw what was missing. He added them. He saw that there was still sin in the hearts of the people. He got on his knees with them and confessed his own sins and their sins together. And despite the opposition, he carried uh, the people of God back to a place where by the end of Ezra, we have a rebuilt temple. We have restored to the word of God. They had lost the very word of God. Imagine if I were here speaking to you today at the conference and none of you had a Bible. It's kind of like what Ezra was doing. He had to restore to them the word of God. But he did so in a way that brought honor and glory uh, to the Lord Jesus. So I will stop there. As you'll see uh, tomorrow, let's focus in a little bit more on the uh, major themes here of how he uh, was able to be so used of the Lord. But as we close, remember this beautiful principle, hopefully, that we've tried to share today. That despite the fact that the Lord disciplined his people, despite the fact that he brought them into some pretty dark times, where they wondered if they'd ever return to the land. You know, 70 is, a re, is, is an interesting number. You know, seven, of course, is the number of God's perfection. Uh, 10 is a number of God's administration or one of his administrations of laws. You know, we have number 10 and 12 both speak of administration. There were 12 uh, apostles, of course, and, and 12, disi- 12, 12 disciples. Um, so we have um, an interesting combination of 7 and 10 together, 70. That it was well beyond a generation. So their suffering was there for a long time. They wondered if they'd ever make it back. But God knew it the whole time. And like I said last night, as we quote those words of Jeremiah, the Lord has thoughts of peace towards us, not evil. He knows what's coming for you next week, next month, next year, next decade, if he hasn't returned yet. And just like the Lord is going to take care of these people, and bring them back to himself and restore the empire. He wants to bring you back. Where are you today? Are you in Babylon? Are you away from the Lord? Are you struggling? Are you you struggling to see and enjoy the peace that God wants you to have and the fellowship that he wants you to have? Uh, Are are you like Zerubbabel? Are, Are you back in facing opposition, feeling a little bit discouraged at times that that you wonder if we're going to have success? Uh, Are you like Ezra? Are you being used of the Lord to motivate others and encourage others in the study of God's word and the restoration of his temple? Wherever you are in your spectrum today, hopefully these principles will encourage you. Let's pray. Father, we're delighted to be here today. What an absolutely beautiful venue to be here. We're thankful even just for the beautiful weather that we can enjoy and the fellowship we can enjoy together. 
Father, it humbles us when we look at the nation of Israel and their repeated failures and wonder sometimes how could they be so foolish to make the same mistakes over and over again. And then we look at our own hearts and we say, we know exactly what that's like. Oh, what a patient God we have who forgives not just once or twice, but 70 times, seven times. Oh God, help us to be more like these men and women that we've been reading on these pages. Help us to know that we have a hope in one who can restore. Father, we may look around us at times and be discouraged that like in the nation of Israel where it seemed the priests, the prophets, and the kings had all failed. Give us confidence in our prophet, priest, and king, the one who has no equal, the one who is our leader, the one who motivates us, the one who brings us together. Bless us now, Father. Encourage us. Help us to enjoy the rest of the day. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.